0: Thank you very much, Mark. Good morning to you all. If you would turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. I'd like for us to think about this chapter in light of the issue of risk. Risk is basically where you expose yourself to something unwanted, uh, something negative. Uh, some kind of danger or harm or loss. And it's helpful to think about that reality in a fallen world because God calls us to trust him in light of risk. God calls us to love in light of risk. And so uh, we want to think about that. Um, In a fallen world, there are all kinds of risks, right? If you, like Dan's brother, if you take a trip to Israel with a group of Uh, church, fellow church members, uh, you never know what might happen in the Middle East, and you take a risk. It may be a calculated risk, but it's still a risk. And so uh, you have those kinds of risks. You've got uh, risks of uh, just flying on an airplane or driving down the highway, or uh, risks like getting married or having children. Uh, There are all kinds of things in life you could almost say just about everything in life has some kind of risk involved in terms of the potential for there to be something unwanted happening, something negative happening, something uh, that is harmful or dangerous or a loss is going to be experienced at some point. And so uh, what we want to do is to realize that that's the nature of the world we live in because it's fallen, but we don't want those risks to keep us from loving uh, it shouldn't keep us from getting married, shouldn't keep us from having children, shouldn't keep us from buying a car or buying a house or or taking a job or anything else, even though there's a risk involved. And so we want to highlight the fact that love is pursuing the good of others according to what is right and wise and good, which means according to scripture, in the face of risk, danger, harm, and loss. Um, Someone has said, behold the turtle, he makes progress only when he sticks his neck out. And you can use that as a picture of the fact that love, in a sense, is uh, what God calls us to, and in a sense, it's a calling to stick your neck out, to take a risk, because there's always a chance that uh, something unwanted might happen if you love in a certain way. And so, I want to think about that in light of this, this passage, Acts chapter 18, as we continue working our way through the book of Acts. I'd just like to go through it section by section and then try to make some application at the end before we celebrate the Lord's Supper and have our family time. Uh, if you would, look first of all at verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. It says, After these things he, speaking of Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so here we have Paul leaving Athens after his Sermon on Mars Hill, and he goes to Corinth, which is in Greece. Uh, Corinth um, was a pretty large city in that day and time, 200,000 plus people. Um, It was an interesting city because it was kind of the Las Vegas of the time, a very populous city, very uh, prosperous city, and very uh, immoral city. And so Uh, Paul comes to Corinth and he meets um, Aquila and Priscilla who have been kicked out of Rome simply because they're Jews. And the reality is what happened in AD 49 is that there were some riots going on in Rome um, because there were debates over this guy named Christus or Christ. And We assume that Christus, as it's recorded, by one of the ancient historians is actually a reference to Christ. So there was this debate among the Jews over whether or not Christ is the Messiah. Rioting took place in Rome, and so the Jews were expelled from Rome. And so they end up in Corinth, and they have a leather-working trade, which is what that word really means. They made tents, but they also made other things. And Paul has the same uh, technology or trade, and so they end up um, working together and uh, staying together. And so the first thing that we see in this passage is the rejection of the Jews from Rome because of a controversy over the gospel. Look at now at verses 5 through 11. It says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man called Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. And so Paul comes to Corinth and begins preaching the gospel to the Jews And for the most part, they reject his message. And he says, okay, fine. Then I will go to the Gentiles. Uh, Your blood is on your own heads, which is a way of saying, I fulfilled my duty to proclaim the gospel to you. You refuse to receive it. So I'm moving on to the Gentiles. And some of the Jews believed, but many of the Gentiles believed. And yet in the midst of all this, God comes to Paul and tells him not to be afraid and not to stop speaking, which is kind of interesting because you would think that God wouldn't have to tell Paul that. You would think that Paul probably just was um, able to you know, get beaten with rods and whips and get shipwrecked and all the things he went through just like water off the duck's back and it was just no problem at all. And yet this actually reveals that Paul probably struggled like you and I struggle with fear, with not wanting to go through persecution, by needing encouragement to continue doing what we're doing, especially when we know we're exposing ourselves to harm, exposing ourselves to loss of various kinds. That it's risky business, loving people with the gospel, and so, having a word from God is crucial in those situations. And God gave him that word and encouraged him through a vision. It actually says in First Corinthians two, Paul says, "When I came to you, brethren, speaking of the Corinthians, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear." And in much trembling. You probably don't think about Paul that way. I don't typically think about Paul that way, but it just reminds us that um, none of us do anything apart from the grace of God. We are all weak, weak people. It's only the grace of God that enables us to be courageous, that enables us to risk harm and and loss in speaking the gospel or loving people in ways that they may not want to be loved. It takes the grace of God. And so it's an encouragement to us when we see Paul struggling, and yet God giving him the grace and promising him the grace. And in this case, actually promising him that he was going to be okay, that he wasn't going to be attacked. And he settled down for a year and a half. Only Ephesus is the uh, other place that he... Ministered to longer, probably about two years there. But even though he wasn't harmed, he still uh, was challenged, was opposed. And if you look at verse 12, we see that happening. It says But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But If there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. And so this judgment seat was the Bema seat. It was probably seven and a half feet high. And Galileo would rule on things from that judgment seat. But as soon as he realized this was a religious debate, similar to what got the Jews kicked out of Rome, he said, no, thank you. I'm not going to be involved in these religious debates. And he wouldn't hear what they had to say. And yet Sosthenes still gets beaten, and Galileo doesn't... Um, Galileo, I guess, is probably the better pronunciation, doesn't do anything. And Sosthenes is actually mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> if it's the same Sosthenes, that means that Sosthenes either was a Christian or became a Christian after this um, experience. And so it appears that the policy of Rome at this point was just to leave the Christians alone, assuming that they were just a sect of the Jews. But that will change uh, later on with Nero. And so it goes on from there. Paul ends up leaving. It says in verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila, In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, He left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Prigia, strengthening all the disciples. And so evidently Paul had taken a, a vow, and it appears to have been a personal vow that the Jewish people might take in certain situations, probably linked to the vision that he had received where God promised to protect him while he was in Corinth. And evidently he just let his hair grow during that time, God protected him. And as he was leaving Corinth, he had his hair cut, which is basically a way of saying God kept his promise to me. He goes to Ephesus and he spends some time there, but he leaves. They ask him to stay, but he decides to leave. It's possible that he wanted to get to Jerusalem by the time of Passover or some other uh, festival, or maybe it had to do with fulfilling the commitment of his vow. But for one reason or, or another, He left to go to Jerusalem, and then it tells us that he began his third missionary journey. Then the last part of the chapter has to do with this man named Apollos, and if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you find out that Apollos and Paul, um, as well as Peter and Jesus, end up being uh, competing um, mentors or names that people got behind Uh, categories of um, fanboys or whatever you might call it. In verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures That Jesus was the Christ. And so Apollos is a believer from Egypt. Um, Martin Luther uh, imagines that maybe Apollos was the one who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's his educated guess. We don't know for sure. But Apollos comes and he's preaching the gospel, and by God's providence, um, Priscilla and Aquila have been kicked out of Rome. they go through Corinth, and they end up in Ephesus, and by God's providence, they are there to help Apollos uh, learn the gospel, learn the truth more accurately. He was preaching it accurately, and yet, in some sense, it was incomplete, and so they had to complete his lack of understanding, and the reality is, all of us, when we're born again, have maybe an accurate understanding of the gospel, but a very incomplete understanding of the gospel and it's through preaching and teaching and the various means that God uses that we come to have a greater understanding and more accurate understanding of the gospel and of the truth and that's what they did for Apollos and so eventually Apollos goes to Achaia which means that he leaves Turkey where Ephesus is and he goes to Corinth where in Greece and that's where some of the competition happens in the church, not because of Apollos, not because of Paul, but because of how the people handle their preaching and teaching and wanting their own personal fan club or whatever. Um, It kind of works out that way. Um, But we see God using Apollos, and he was a blessing to the church in various ways, and Paul only has praise uh, for Apollos, never criticizes him at all. So anyway, what I wanted to do is try to apply what we see in this chapter to the issue of what it means to trust God and what it means to love people. Because obviously there are a lot of things that happened in Acts 18 that are far and distant uh, from us and don't seem to have a whole lot of uh, application. But when you think about this from the perspective of of risk, every missionary is going into a risky situation. Not too long, long ago, we saw the um, live stream from the voice of the martyrs and we saw the four ladies talking about their experience um, losing a husband a couple of them lost husbands one of them lost a husband in the sense that she doesn't know where he is another lady experienced extreme tortures of various kinds and so um, obviously you've got people involved in ministry and involved in the church in various areas of the world, whether missionaries or just part of the local church there, in those countries that are risking danger and harm and loss just because they're preaching the gospel or they're living as Christians. And that's one of the things that we haven't experienced as much in our country. When I was growing up um, to be a Christian wasn't really risky business. In fact, it could be politically advantageous where I grew up to be a Christian and to go to church right before the election. In this day and time, it's a little more risky to be a Christian in a lot of different ways. And it's just helpful to realize that because uh, many of us tend to be risk-averse. We don't like risk. I'm one of those people right here. And I have to ask myself... Am I limiting my love because I'm risk-averse? I don't want to risk loss or danger or or harm. But in in a fallen world, that is uh, what we experience all the time. There are those in the safety um, field that talk about the fact that most people are risk-illiterate. And so uh, there's a... A coach, I think, um, if I understand correctly, why he didn't fly. He did not fly on an airplane because he was afraid of crashing. And so instead, he would drive. And yet, those in the safety field would say it's riskier to drive than it is to fly in an airplane. But we think it's just the reverse. Or there are those who would say... um, you realize you're more likely to get struck by lightning than to win the lottery. In fact, you're 13 times more likely to get struck by lightning than to win the lottery. And so my point is, um, sometimes we don't factor in the issue of risk when we're thinking about our lives, and sometimes our whole perception of risk is, is way out of proportion, and it hinders us in various ways, like the quote from uh, Bilbo to Frodo: "It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door." There's a lot of truth in that. there There is a, da- there is a danger that we try to communicate to our teenagers when they start driving. When you start driving, realize there you need to be careful on the road. It's not it's not just bumper cars. You know, there, there's some danger involved in driving. And it's the same way in a lot of other things in our lives. And yet, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of those books that highlights uh, the risk involved in life. And in chapter 11, many people look at the first six verses as really a poetic way of talking about risk. It says, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. They would say that that actually referred to. The risk of shipping your grain by boat. There was a risk involved because the boat might sink. And yet you're more likely to be much more profitable as a business if you took the risk. It goes on to say, divide your portion to seven or even to eight. For you do not know what misfortune misfortune may occur on the earth. Which talks about the fact uh, you need to diversify because there is a risk involved in all of your investments. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Though it might rain. So I won't do anything. I'm going to be risking something if I do this. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, So you do not know the activity of God who makes all things, which highlights the fact that obviously God's in control, even in control of the risks we have to take. And yet we don't know what God has planned for tomorrow. So there's obviously some risk involved, at least from our perspective, not from his. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. So do what you know to do, do what is right and wise, take whatever is appropriate risk and trust God with the risks that you take. Seems to be what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. And so it's just helpful to realize that in a fallen world, risk will always be a factor. And we have to be careful of Uh, trying to remove all risk. There's a story of a a man who heard about a child that was accidentally uh, hit by a car and that was the last thing that he wanted to see happen to his own children. And so he moved out into the middle of nowhere and built a house and put up all kinds of signs, children at play, and did everything he could to try to protect his children and his 18-month-old son still was accidentally killed. And so when you think about um, our lives, um, accidents happen. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman uh, with his child accidentally um, killed in an accident. And so there are all kinds of things that can happen. And so God never tells us to simply minimize risk or avoid risk. God, that's a negative thing. God tells us to pursue love, pursue what is right, pursue what is wise. That's what he tells us to do. And so the issue isn't, is there any risk involved? The issue is, is this the right thing to say? Is this the right thing to do? Is this the wise thing to say? Is this the wise thing to do? That's the issue. It's not the risk involved. And yet, It's very easy for us to focus on that. And so there is a risk involved in loving. And obviously Paul very much felt that. That's why he needed the word from God. Do not be afraid. I'm going to protect you. He knew that it was risky business preaching the gospel. He'd already been persecuted. He'd already been beaten. And all of us can grow weary at times. And evidently he was as well. But... What this chapter highlights for us, there's all kinds of ways in which um, loving can be risky. It can be risky in terms of rejection. You know, I can love someone and be rejected. I can love someone and incur physical harm. I can love someone and they can misunderstand what I'm really trying to do. Um, I can love someone... And it results in someone else getting hurt. I'm taking all this from the chapter in light of the rejection of the Jews, in light of the physical harm that Paul was afraid of, in light of the misunderstanding of what the gospel really was, and in light of Sosthenes, who got beaten for what was going on. He got beaten because of what Paul was doing. And so there's a real risk in terms of When we do the right and wise thing, it may affect people we care about. But do we allow that to keep us from not loving? I mean, one of the ladies in the VOM uh, live stream talked about the fact that there are those who question whether her and her husband did the right thing when they brought their young son to Libya. I think it was Libya. And they questioned whether or not that was the loving thing to do. And they both said, yeah, we think it is the loving thing to do. But they knew there was a risk involved. And so the reality is, if risk is the only factor, then many families will never go to the mission field. Many people will never go to the mission field if it's simply based on risk. Uh, But if it's based on love, then they can say, well, yes, there's a risk involved, but the potential benefit is greater than the risk. And that's what investors say all the time. The question is, is the potential benefit, the calculated risk, uh, greater than uh, the risk involved? Um, one time there was um, a ship that was wrecked off the coast of New England, and one of the Coast Guard members said, um, we can't go out because the weather's so bad, If we go out, we'll never get back. And an older member of the crew said, we have to go out. We don't have to come back. So what was he saying? He was saying, it's our job to do this. From a Christian perspective, we would say, it's the loving thing to do. It's the right thing to do for us to go out and try to rescue those people. Is there a risk we might not come back? Yes, there is. But is it the right thing to do? Yes, it's the right thing to do. And so we take that risk. C.S. Lewis talks about this issue of risk in a very helpful way. He says, in terms of love, he says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or at least to the risk of tragedy is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. I believe that the most lawless and inordinate loves are less contrary to God's will than, in, than a self-invited and self-protective lovelessness. It is like hiding the talent in a napkin and for much the same reason. I knew that you were a hard man. Christ did not teach and suffer that we might become, even in the natural loves, more careful of our own happiness. If a man is not uncalculating towards the earthly beloveds whom he has seen, he is none the more likely to be so towards God whom he has not. We shall draw nearer to God, not by trying to avoid the sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to him, throwing away all defensive armor. If our hearts need to be broken and if he chooses this as the way in which they should break, so be it. So what he's saying is that every act of love is risky. We may be rejected. We may be harmed. We may experience loss at some point. um, But the alternative is even worse where we're just selfishly Uh, wrapped up in our own lives and protecting ourselves, and we end up guarding our heart in such a way that we actually shrink it instead of enlarging our heart by loving people even though it's risky to do that. And so we see this talked about in various ways but in terms of the use of the word risk in the Bible we see in Acts 15 where it says it seemed good to us having become "...of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." Or in Romans 16, it says, "...greet Prisca and Aquila, which is the same as Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks." Just like the turtle, they stuck out their necks for me. "...to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles." And then in Philippians 2, it says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So we're talking about in all of these cases, acts of love that were exposing them to danger, exposing them to possibly the loss of their lives. And... Paul commends that kind of risk-taking. Now, obviously, um, there is a kind of risk-taking that isn't good. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But not only is there risk in loving, but there's risk in being loved. And this relates especially to what's going on with Israel, um, as well as what's going on with us as Christians in the world there are two places in Scripture, well, two basic uh, themes in Scripture that talk about God's love, God's a unique kind of love that God has. And one of those refers to the nation of Israel, and one refers to believers. Um, for instance, you notice um, in the Old Testament it says various things, like in Malachi, um God says to Israel, I have loved you. And they ask, How have you loved us? And he says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet Hyatt loved Jacob. And Paul actually quotes that in the New Testament in Romans 9 when he says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In Romans 11, Paul goes on to say something very interesting about Israel. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be in- uninformed of this mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written the, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now that's one of the most controversial passages, passages in the New Testament. But I'm of the opinion that it refers to the fact that God isn't finished with national Israel, that he's going to save a large number of Jews in the future. Even though they have, across um, the centuries, largely rejected Christ, at some point in the future they will largely receive him as their savior. But it goes on to say this. Paul says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, you're right. The Jews are enemies to the gospel. The Jewish people have rejected their Messiah overall. Even though at one point point in the future, I think that will change. But he says, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, which is very, very interesting. He says, Israel as a nation is beloved for the sake of the fathers, For the gifts and and the calling of God are irrevocable. So he's talking about Jews. He's talking about national Israel. And he's highlighting the fact that, yes, there's been a hardening of the Jewish people. And for the most part, they have largely rejected their Messiah. But one day that's going to change. And the reason that's going to change is the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable that there's a sense in which God still has a unique kind of love toward the Jewish people. They are beloved of God. And that's why many Christians over the years have supported the idea of supporting the Jews, um, have wanted the U.S. to support the Jews because of those kinds of understandings. And yet there are those who would say, but... Does that somehow contradict what Paul says in Romans 1 when he says to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Which is obviously a reference to Christians. Jews in and of themselves are not Christians unless they believe. And so um, what is what is going on here? And some would say it's not the, it's not the exact same thing to say that Christians are beloved of God and Jews are beloved of God, but Paul says both. So even though it's not ex- the exact same thing to say that, doesn't mean that unbelieving Jews will go to heaven just because they're Jews, but it does mean that God has something yet for the Jewish people and that we should not um, be unconcerned about the Jewish people as Christians. Um, because there is, a, there's, and this is my point that I'm really getting to, is that if you look at the history of the world, the Jews have been a persecuted people, for sure. And Christians are persecuted people. They're not the only ones, but you could argue that they, they are the two groups that have been most persecuted in history. And why is that? Well, I would argue it is because of that beloved status. Because Jesus said in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all because of my name. But there's a spiritual dynamic going on here. It's been interesting to hear people talk, even in our own country, about what's going on with Israel and Hamas and even people in our own government um, condemning Israel uh, for what they're doing. And many would say what a lot of people are saying is uh, an expression of anti-Semitism and and that we're seeing that come out in various ways. Well, what I'm arguing is that one of the explanations for that and probably the most profound explanation for anti-Semitism as well as anti-Christianity is the fact that Satan hates God and therefore he hates any people that the Bible says is God's beloved, whether it's Israel or the church. And therefore, it's risky business being loved by God. That's my point. And so the fact that we're loved by God as Christians, we should recognize means that we have a target on our back in a fallen world where Satan is the, Uh, little ruler over all things. And so there's a risk involved in following Christ. And like I mentioned before, all risk is not uh, equal. There's what you might call uncalculated risk where we uh, seek to love, but we don't love in terms of what the Bible says is right and wrong or what the Bible says is wise. I would call that an uncalculated risk in the fact that we're not... Um, calculating the risk in light of what the Bible says is right and wise. It's kind of like, I think I mentioned to you, the fact that this artist came up with this um, work where there was a chair and there was a shotgun and the shotgun was on a timer. And on the timer, it was set to, the shotgun was set to go off at some point within a hundred year, year period of time. And the experience of his art required for you to go in and sit down in that chair for one minute. And people lined up to sit in that chair. Now, that was a risk, which I would call an uncalculated risk in the sense of it was a foolish risk. There's nothing in doing that that would say, I'm trusting God appropriately, and I'm loving as I should appropriately. There's nothing in that action that reflects what God calls us to uh, as his people, as Christians, or even as humans. Um, But when it comes to calculated risk, what I mean by calculated, it's not a matter of, well, if I'm sure that I will end up with more good than loss, I'll do it. That's not really the calculation I'm talking about. Uh, The calculation I'm talking about is, is what I'm considering doing that's risky Is it the right thing to do? Is it the right thing to do, according to the Bible? And secondly, is it wise, all things considered? Is it it the wise thing to do, all things considered, even if the risk is great? And so uh, Theodore Roosevelt talked about the fact that a lot of people never get into politics, they never get into any kind of risky venture, because they're afraid of failure. They're afraid of the risk of uh, not succeeding. And he said, as you might recall, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. So he talks about the fact of not just risking anything and everything, uh, but risking things for a worthy cause for what is right and what is wise and trusting God with the outcome. He doesn't say trusting God, but from a Christian perspective, we would say and trusting God if it fails, but doing what is right and wise. And that's why Paul could say things like this in First Corinthians 16. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost where a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries, which means there's a lot of risk here, so a lot of risk of harm, risk of danger, risk of loss. There's a real opportunity here for me to love in some wonderful ways. And therefore, I'm going to take the risk. Well, I want to conclude with th- this reminder that one of the things that is meant to encourage us to take um, calculated risks risk calculated on the basis of the word of God, what is right and wise, is the fact that love is not risky for God because God is sovereign over the fallen world. Now, there are are many people that don't actually believe that. Um, There are those who've embraced the idea of open theism, which basically says that God is a risk taker. There's an article by... Uh, a certain gentleman who that's entitled, Imitate God, Take Risks. <clears throat> and he says, Mission is risky business. It means taking chances and being susceptible to failure. But God seems the biggest risk taker of all. Mission requires vulnerability. It involves a measure of dependence upon those not always dependable. Convincing others through our lives, our relationships, and our ideas means risking rejection. Mission requires humility. More and more Christians are coming to believe that God is on a mission. God is not resting alone, content, and disengaged. God has not predestined all things with a blueprint set in stone long, long ago. A missional God, Missio Dei, if you think the Latin words sound cool, is a God who becomes vulnerable, dependent, and risks rejection. A missional God to steal words from C.S. Lewis used in his description of Aslan is on the move. If you read the whole article, you realize that this gentleman has the position of open theism. That means God doesn't know the future exhaustively. And God is taking a risk by sending a Son. God is taking a risk by entrusting His people with certain responsibilities that it may not play out exactly like God wants it to play out. There's some danger and some harm and some loss involved that God could not have anticipated and God could not have controlled Well, I would argue that that's totally false. The Bible contradicts that. And it's actually the fact that there is no risk from God's perspective that emboldens us to take risks. That God has promised to fulfill his purposes. God has promised to keep his promises to his people. And therefore, when we take calculated risks based on what's right and wise according to God's word, as best we understand it, and we can trust him to keep his promises to us and to fulfill his purposes. I mean, Jesus could say things like, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's a risky business. That's a risky lifestyle. But God obviously says, But don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm in charge of all the risks. I'm in charge of the fallen world. He could not say, don't be afraid, as he does in Matthew 10, unless he was really in control of everything and that we could trust him um, completely. Let me just close by highlighting the fact that the Bible says there is a risk that is the um, riskiest thing that we could ever do. And it's actually expressed in Jeremiah 30 where it says, their leader shall be one of them and their ruler shall come forth from their midst and I will bring him near and he shall approach me for who would dare to risk his life to approach me? It's an interesting question. Who would dare to risk his life to approach me? And that's God asking the question. And basically he's saying, who would dare as a sinner risk approaching a holy God without any kind of mediator. And yet the reality is people do it all the time. They take the ultimate risk of appearing before a holy God without their sins forgiven. And that's why Jesus came, was to eliminate that risk, to eliminate Mm -hmm. that uh, problem that we all have. And that's why it says in, in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so just wrapping this up, the reality is in terms of risk, there's all kinds of risks. The greatest risk of all is dying unprepared to meet a holy God. And Jesus came so that he would be, through the cross, an able and willing Savior for sinners, for everyone who would turn to him in repentance and faith. But when we think about it as Christians, we all risk things as well. And it's important to realize that in our day and time, um, you'll hear people talk in such a way uh, that they'll say uh, that, things like, good things like marriage is risky, having children is risky in a dangerous world, Um, even going out and trying to get a job is risky, Um, and as a result, you find people choosing not to get married, and choosing not to have children, choosing choosing not to go out and get a job, and other good things that God calls us to do, and the reality is, um, it actually hurts them and hurts those around them. And so the issue of risk is truly an issue of love. Are we willing to trust God with whatever risk doing the right thing creates? Are we willing to trust God with whatever risk doing the wise thing creates? And believing that God isn't taking any risks. uh, He planned everything from the beginning He ordained everything. He knows everything in detail. And he will keep his promises and fulfill his good purposes for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Um, I thank you so much for the encouragement to remember that loving and trusting you is very much risk-related. And I just pray that you'd help me and help us to see how being risk-averse is keeping us or in the future might keep us from doing what is right, doing what is wise, doing what is truly loving in certain relationships, in certain situations. We pray, Lord, that we would have a proper perspective on that. Help us not to be foolhardy. Help us not to take an uncalculated risk that simply ignore what your word says in terms of what is right and wise. But Father, help us to trust you that even when we seek to do what is right and wise, it doesn't eliminate risk, it may indeed create risk. And yet help us to trust you with that dynamic. Help us to know that you are truly sovereign and good. You're good and you do good. And we can trust you and we can step out. We can stick our necks out to love and help us to grow in that. Help me to grow in that. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.